So you're listening to Nonprofit Tangent. My name is Bill, and this is Season 1, Episode 1. I don't know what I'm doing. I'll be honest, right off the bat, I tried this a couple years ago. I really liked it. Again, still didn't know what I was doing back then. I'm uh, not sure why I'm doing a podcast, but I, I know kind of what drives me, which is uh, that I'm really interested in the stories that come out of nonprofits. Because most nonprofits are very human organizations, meaning, of course, they're run by humans, but the work that they do is very human oriented. So humans just have interesting stories. So a lot of interesting stories come out of the work of nonprofits. And I found that interesting. I thought I would try to capture some of the stories that I hear. And uh, share them with other people and see if I can spread the word a little bit about some of these uh, interesting things that are happening and that are don't always get uh, noticed. So uh, all this discussion of human stories and we're going to start off today's podcast with an organization that deals with trees. So uh, I don't know uh, how this came about. No, I mean it, it's a really it's a trees organization. It's called Trees New York. But, uh, but a lot of the stuff that comes out is um, about the people that started it, the conditions of New York City of when this organization started, and how people can get involved in some of the things that are happening today with the organization, which are really cool. Then we're going to finish up with Karina Nagan, who is from Mission Restore. I'll talk more about the organization uh, after the first interview, but uh, she shares some really outstanding stories that I enjoyed listening to, and I think you will too. And that kind of summarizes the podcast again there. So with that, let's get to my interview with Nelson Villaruba, Executive Director of Mission Restore. Maybe uh, actually you can uh, do a quick sort of elevator pitch or just introduce people who don't know what Trees New York is. Uh, What would you say to, to someone who doesn't know what it is? Sure. So, Trees New York, uh, our mission is to plant, preserve, and protect New York City's street trees. We mobilize volunteers to help ensure that New York City street trees survive and thrive. So, uh, we were founded in 1976 as a volunteer response to the economic crisis that was going on in New York City at the time. Uh, Parks Department, the New York City Parks Department basically didn't have a budget to plant or care for trees at the scale that we're doing now. So they created uh, an incentive program with a group of activists that formed our uh, group and they said, well, if you can get volunteers together to care for street trees and do long-term care as pruning and maintenance goes on, we'll prioritize your blocks to plant trees. So uh, the activists came together and they got all these volunteers uh, together and they came up with the Citizen Pruner course, which trains and licenses volunteers to properly prune uh, street trees. So um, it started in the Upper West Side and basically the West Village as well, getting volunteers together, taking this 12-hour course. And after they took the course, the Parks Department gave them their commitment and started planting street trees. So it was a really great way to get community engaged. And it was almost a response to seeing people fleeing the neighborhood as well. 
So right. there was all these people moving and uh, moving away from New York City. So it created community around trees, and people saw that block by block. Now we talk about, you know, this is a good neighborhood. In 1976, this was a good block. This was a bad block, and all these volunteers were coming together, working on improving block by block, and they were doing that by improving the street tree canopy in those areas. Is there anyone still volunteering from when the organization started? Yeah, we have a core group of people that were still part of the founding, especially um, we we worked with a group called the Carnegie Hill Neighbors, so uh, the uh, Breeside in the 90s area, and um, so they were part of one of the original activist groups that came together in the 70s to work in these areas, and you know, it was a very different neighborhood at the time. I'm, when they explain it now, we see it as this very wealthy uh, neighborhood, but at the time, things when they were cleaning out the tree beds, how much needles they would find wow. in there and uh, it was a real blighted area even though there were all these beautiful brownstones it was still pretty blighted and um, so we have volunteers still from the Carnegie Hill neighbors that are active and uh, they do twice a year they get together and so it's really been interesting to hear their stories and see how they've continued and how they're working to bring in that next generation of volunteers who kind of take all these things for granted now since the neighborhood is so stable so right. uh, they're always trying to recruit new blood as they say so right. yeah so we help them with that what have you seen from some of the people that have been trained in the, in the course and mm-hmm. how is it how is the the whole experience impacted them yeah uh, it's really interesting because probably on the fifth Saturday when I wake up and I know after after working all week that I'm gonna go now to do a an outing. Sometimes I'm really tired and not looking forward to it, but it's really the people that change my perspective really quick on that Saturday morning um, because they're just enthusiastic. We start talking, and they're doing this as a volunteer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're there waking up bright and early on a Saturday, and they're just really engaged and mobilized. And so when I see these 20, 25 people coming together from a neighborhood to make a difference, I just feel so motivated as well, and it reinvigorates me every single time. And um, they're just, you know, knocking on doors, emailing, getting the community together, talking to their neighbors and storefront owners, and getting people to come out on a Saturday morning to really do this. So, and again, they're seeing, you know, this block that's just filled with garbage and weeds and. you know, uh, trees with broken limbs and getting out there and just removing all those weeds, cultivating, and they just feel proud that they're making this impact on the community. And it's something that they never thought of before. Mm -hmm. There's half the people that were just like, I never thought about the trees and what they go through. So all of a sudden, you know, we're talking about that, yeah, trees actually need 20 gallons of water during a week during the summer and thinking about it almost like a potted plant. So how there's limited soil space that a tree grows in. So when they're growing in the forest, there's all this room for the tree roots to grow. So, but a a street tree has this limited amount of soil. So they're just, you know, they're learning all these things as they're going on. And they're just all of a sudden their world perspective and their perspective of New York City's natural environment starts to change. And you're changing mine right now. I'm picking all these questions. So usually that's what happens. Somebody goes from volunteering to all of a sudden they're like a full-fledged tree hobbyist almost, (laughs) learning how to ID the trees and go out to different areas. 
And we have volunteers that will come from Washington Heights to care for trees in Greenpoint when we have an outing there and vice versa. So that's always excites me when I realize how far they travel to come right. out and help another neighborhood even. Yeah. And so maybe you could talk about that. What are some of the people and, and things that these trees have impacted? Have you heard from anyone talked about like how, how trees really influence and impact their, yeah. their lives? Or Yeah, that's one of the most rewarding things is when you work on projects like that and you hear those stories. So we just recently planted 800 trees in the North Bronx on NYCHA developments. So we wanted to reduce surface temperatures. There's a thing called the urban heat island effect. So by leaving the city, you can experience like a 10 degree temperature drop just because of the amount of uh, trees and and the natural environment. Uh, And so cities are usually about 10 to 20 degrees warmer than just an hour outside in the suburbs. So we targeted all these areas. There was all these basketball courts and blacktop playgrounds that were just baking in the sun, not being utilized by the neighborhood because it was just too hot. There were were no trees there. So we planted large trees. They were about two-and-a-half-inch caliper trees, so meaning the diameter of the trunks already about two-and-a-half inches. So large, they weigh 300 pounds, they need to be planted by a contractor. And we planted trees all around the perimeters of these playgrounds. And so you get the neighbors come out and, and thank you. They're like, oh, we walked you know, 20 minutes to the other basketball court to use that one because this one's too hot. And now all of a sudden it's a learning moment for them to learn about the benefits of trees. And, and uh, we move away they're beautiful, and they, uh, but moving away from just the beautification aspect and talking about like uh, reducing stormwater runoff and urban heat island effect and uh, reducing energy overload. Um, so it's really great, and there's these trees that we worked on along the, um, the, the Bruckner in the Bronx, and there were all, all these playgrounds that now you can't even see when you're driving down the Bruckner because they're all covered in these beautiful trees. So uh, they're nice and cool and I always walk by and see now that this large canopy covering these playgrounds and that are being fully utilized now. And also capturing things like particulate matter too. So you have all these playgrounds right near a highway and so you have all those particulates coming from the exhaust so now you're creating this nice uh, canopy cover that's the leaves are actually capturing all this particulate and then when it rains it just washes away rather than just them being in the in the air so combination of things goes on and on and just the the benefits of people being outdoors and healthy and enjoying their environment you know if someone's listening to this and they're really interested in the idea of this sounds like something they want to do and participate in. When are there? When do you uh, have classes? When do you certify yep. people? And uh, so, our citizen pruner course is held every spring and fall. Uh, we do it in all uh, five boroughs, uh, depending on the season where which borough we're in. Um, we do two in Manhattan, Brooklyn, um, and uh, it's a 12-hour course and after you finish the course you get certified to and licensed to properly prune street trees and you become a trees new yorker and part of the family and yeah we offer it every spring and fall so uh, if anyone's interested they can visit our website treesny.org 
go click on Citizen Pruner and there's a little web form there so that the next schedule that comes out, they can receive it. So in addition to volunteering, are there any opportunities, any, any other opportunities for people to get involved with uh, Trees New York? Yeah, so every summer we hire around 16 high school students and give them their first job in urban and community forestry. It's a paid internship program, seven weeks, about 175 hours a week. And they're introduced to environmental careers and environmental education through caring for street trees in urban forestry. So um, they go on field trips and uh, visit all different parts of uh, New York City's uh, urban environment and natural environment. We take them upstate so they get to leave the city sometimes for the first time and experience uh, things like New York City's watershed and some of our state forests. And they also help us care for street trees when they need it the most during the hottest, driest weeks of summer. On average, we care for about 500 to 700 street trees in that time period. And uh, it's a really great experience for the students. They learn about interviewing skills, how to build a resume, eye contact, shaking hands, uh, communicating with people, networking. Uh, so it's a, it's a really great program because over the seven weeks, the students really transform from usually being shy and not understanding anything about trees to really understanding the, the science of trees and uh, the social science of trees and how they benefit the neighborhood as well. Kind of we started off the conversation talking about like the idea of uh, trees near coming out of urban decay in the 70s mm-hmm. and the city pulling back money for services. Kind of what's I guess the what's the future I guess at this point is you know the city seems to be doing much better these days yeah. right um, is uh, Trees New York going to continue to be part of the sort of city's plans for the future and yeah uh, so we just recently ended the Million Trees initiatives but now there's neighborhoods in New York City that have hundreds of new street trees that are less than five years old. So our goal is to make sure all these trees survive and thrive and reach their full potential. Um, Areas that we're working in still contend with environmental issues. Even some, you know, we hear about all the gentrification going on in North Brooklyn. So it's a wealthier neighborhood, but it's still considered like an environmental justice neighborhood. Along the Newtown Creek is an EPA Superfund site. Uh, Gowanus Canal area, EPA Superfund site. So there's still a lot of environmental issues that the city is dealing with, and trees play a vital role in that. So um, trees absorb stormwater runoff, and so there's CSO combined sewage overflow, where the uh, rainwater and then our wastewater, uh, this sewer system can't handle it when after a heavy rainstorm. So some of that water dumps out into our riverways. So we want to help. Uh, create a healthy urban forest along these riverways so they're able to absorb the excess stormwater, especially along these areas that are EPA Superfund sites. So we want to make sure Greenpoint just recently has about 500 new trees in the last six years. So we want to make sure those trees survive and thrive. So there's always, trees have this kind of uh, effect on all different environmental issues. There's still neighborhoods that are right along the FDR or the Cross Bronx or um, um, the uh, Brooklyn-Queens Expressway that need to 
still have trees or those trees reach full maturity to help combat air pollution and as lower asthma rates. Uh, so in city this dense, this urban, there's always going to be a need for for uh, healthy canopies. So that's really what we're trying to do is make sure that these trees reach their full potential. So while there isn't a need to plant as many trees, there's a need to really mobilize volunteers and uh, community groups to help care for them. Right. Okay. And we've been doing uh, kind of switching gears a little bit too. We have an urban agriculture program. So we plant fruit trees in community gardens. So we've been hearing a lot about food justice and uh, understanding where our food comes from. So we plant apple trees on school property and pear trees. So it may not feed a whole neighborhood, but it really gives this uh, opportunity for people to see what fresh apples look like from a tree or a pear or or cherries. So uh, we work with community gardens and schools, and we plant about... 30 fruit trees uh, and it's not just planting the tree it's like 12 hours of learning how to properly care for and harvest fruit trees uh, composting any of the fruit that's not edible uh, learning about your what's called the carbon food print how far food travels to reach you and food security so again just kind of how a fruit tree can teach you about all these other different types of environmental right. issues Talk to me a little bit about the um, uh, some of the, the students that you've worked with and some of the impact that you've had yeah. on the students that come out. To so in school, out of school, we go into the public school system and we teach students why trees are important to the urban environment. Uh, do a quick indoor lesson, get them understanding, and then we take them out, outside to care for the trees around the perimeter of their schools. Uh, so we really take a learning while doing approach. So... We try to get them to learn while they're mm-hmm. doing, not sitting in the classroom the whole time just learning about trees. And that way they can see the impact that they make right in mm-hmm. their their neighborhood. So usually they're worried about getting their sneakers dirty <laughs> or you know all the garbage in the tree beds. But they really get into it and they start seeing things like we're planting daffodil bulbs in the tree bed and seeing things like earthworms in there, screaming about <laughs> the earthworms and laughing. Or We even had a group of students that were so excited because they saw morning doves uh, nesting in one of the trees that they cared for and they had never seen that before. Right. So we talked about trees as habitat for uh, New York City and for animals and uh, they were really excited about that to see that so right. these are things that they're gonna then talk to about their parents or, or build on um, I had a student say once after we did a whole project I'll never litter again and so that's a win right there for wow. us and for the student because he just spent two hours removing all the litter from the tree sure. buds and realized how disgusting it was. And he was like, I'm never going to litter again. So I thought that was really great how it can just change civic-mindedness as yeah, well. Yeah, definitely. Okay, and so that was Nelson, Nelson Villaruba from Trees New York. A huge thank you to him. I want to move on to our follow-up interview with uh, Karina Nagan, who I spoke to a couple of years ago in this podcast that I did a couple of years ago. And the organization she directs is called Mission Restore. 
they are an organization that basically helps surgeons and, and hospitals in developing countries. At the end of our interview, Karina shared a few interesting stories, and I, I wanted to just jump straight into them because they're, I, I just found them really interesting, and uh, so I wanted to share them with you. So uh, here's uh, my interview with Karina Nagin. Do you remember when's the last time we met? Was it a year ago? Was it? I, I think it was like more close to two years ago. Two years. Oh my goodness. Okay. I awesome. want to say that is a. Yeah. Okay. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any particular moments that stand out to you as, or just things that very memorable uh, moments over the last couple of years? Yeah. Um, okay. To isolate into a couple. So, one was from, one was from our our first uh, regional training that we did last year in Nairobi when we were uh, unsure if, if this theory that um, these surgeons sort of need a space to connect with each other. And uh, I think I sort of had the fear that, well, maybe they already all know each other or surgeons are busy. We're taking them away from their hospital for three whole days. Like that's a big ask. Is this really going to be valuable? Um, And on the first day of the training, we saw so many uh, wonderful interactions, but one of the ones that stuck stuck with me was two two surgeons uh, who were attending the event just had these huge smile on their faces and they were hugging and they were talking. And I said, oh, you two know each other. And they said, well, we grew up in the same village in Tanzania when we were boys and we were, we were best friends when we were like 10 years old and we haven't seen each other since we were 10 years old. I, one of them went off to study in another country. Uh, another one went to university in, in Tanzania and they hadn't seen each other in almost 20 years. Both of them from this small village had gone on to go to college, become doctors and we're now specializing in surgery. And this is the first time that they had realized and reconnected as surgeons. And just that enthusiasm and, and seeing those connections being made was like definitely a aha moment. This is, this is going to work. So that was a really beautiful moment. The other one was from just recently. We visited our partners uh, in Tanzania and Zanzibar. And we had a wonderful opportunity to do not only do surgical training in the hospital, but we had uh, we spent a day actually following up with patients that we had operated on over a year ago. So we were able to to meet with patients uh, in their homes. We went out to their villages. We went to their homes um, to to both follow up with them and make sure that their recovery had gone smoothly and, and, and all was well. But we actually got to sit in their homes with them and hear the stories of how their lives um, have been changed because of the care they were able to, to receive. And just, I mean, the stories were incredible. Two that come to mind. One was a young girl who uh, was severely burned when her dress caught fire when she was three years old and she had severe burns and had lost use of one of her hands. And a year ago, surgeons that that were working in the local hospital with skills that they learned through our trainings were able to correct these severe burns on her arms and, and release a lot of the burn contractures and the reasons that she was unable to use her arm. Um, and we hoped that it would mean she would regain use of her arm and we sent her, you know, she went home. And so a year later we were sitting with her in her home and watching her be able to write and do her homework and her father almost in tears talking about how, how she, how smart she was and how they thought that she wouldn't be able to go to school 
school because of her deformity. But now because of the surgery, she was she regained use of her arm and was not only able to play and run around with her siblings, but was was starting uh, kindergarten this year. Um, and we saw her actually be able to do her homework and, and practice her writing in her, her school book. So that was a beautiful moment. Wow, really- that really just blew my mind. That's amazing. <laughs> really lovely to see the, the, the final outcomes, which we were so focused sometimes on the, the, ex- the exact intervention that you forget that if what you do, you do well, it can have a, a long-term effect on, on that patient's life for, for years and years to come. And so it was just really lovely to sit in their homes and hear these stories from, um, from these patients uh, a year out. And, and, and I know you said you had maybe another story, but how often do you get to meet with the patients of, of surgeons? I almost feel like you'd be a couple levels removed, but yeah, so I, you get to do often? Or? It's a really special case. And this is actually the first time I've been able to, to do it to see patients um, in a much happier setting in their homes when sort of the success has already settled in and they're, they're back to their normal lives. So this, that's why it was a really high point for me, because it's the first time I've been able to do that in yeah in the past two years this is the first time i've done that so that's probably why i want to hide from it <laughs> of course yeah that i mean that story was amazing there was yeah. another case too that was one of the most severe cases that any of our surgeons have seen it was a she was a, a young mother she was um uh her name's asha and she was i think 28 when we first saw her and she suffered from um epilepsy and she had had a seizure uh, the year before and fallen in in the fire and and had severe burns. Her entire face was deformed in her upper body. And because the injury was so severe, she she had difficulty both breathing and eating. Her nose and mouth had such severe in, uh, trauma that it was it was affecting not just her aesthetically and, uh, and, and pain wise, but also she couldn't eat or breathe. Um, so over the past two and a half years, our surgeons have been providing her operations to correct those injuries. Last year, she gave birth to her third child right before, about six weeks before she received her third surgery. Uh, so this has been a really long process. And on this trip, and so we, we've known Asha for a long time, and she's just she's just one of the most optimistic women I have ever met. She's always positive. She's so thankful, um, even in the face of these, you know, this long recovery. She's been amazing. So this this uh, this trip, Asha invited us to come to her home. She was so excited to host us, and we went to go visit her in her home with her three children. The the third one I hadn't even met yet because she had just given birth to them like a year ago. And sitting in her home and hearing her talk, not just again again about the the fact that these surgeries not only saved her life, she can now breathe, she can now eat. She again, she regained motion of her neck and her arm. She says, I can now hold my baby, which I couldn't do before. Um, I'm able to cook. Uh, I'm able to, you know, to go and get water from the well. We actually went to the well with her. And she said before she wasn't able to even pull up the bucket from the well because her injuries were so severe on her arm. So she's like, now I can not only take care of my family, but what really touched me. And she said before my my son was scared of me. He couldn't he couldn't look at me and, and having your child not be able to be afraid of you just just obviously was was traumatizing to her. And she said, since the surgery, her son, she can't keep off her. He, the whole time we were talking, her son's laughing and sitting on her lap and her children are around her. And you can see that the that 
the joy and the, the outcome of the surgery was not just the physical ability that she able to have, but the closeness with her family. Um, and just being able to sit there with Asha and her three children and hear these stories. And like I said, she's just such an incredible woman that she's been able to go through all of this and take care of her family. And she was so thankful and so happy. And she was, we were just so honored to be in her home. And so that's a relationship, like I said, that we've had for the past two years. And it was felt like a real uh, triumph to be able to sit with it, her and her family and be able to share these stories together. So that was, that was a personal highlight for me. Wow. Yeah. Oh, thank you for sharing that. I told you those are great stories. A uh, huge thank you to Karina for sharing them and for spending some time talking to me. I almost feel like I had, should uh, apologize because she shared so much about the organization and what they're up to because they have so much happening. Uh, it was really exciting to hear everything she had to share. And I highly encourage everyone to follow the links and learn more about all the things that Mission Restore is up to because uh, it's really just uh, it's so many interesting things. And so many great people that they get to work with. Also want to just send another huge thank you to Nelson Villaruba from uh, Trees, New York. So that's it for this episode. I'm going to be back in a couple of weeks with two new interviews. And in the meantime, I suggest that you subscribe to all the Twitters and the Facebooks and all that stuff. So you get an announcement when it comes out. And... Uh, if you are interested in, in being on the show because you run a nonprofit and you would like to be profiled, I'm always looking for new people. I'm trying to put together six or eight episodes in this season, and um, I'm still putting people together. So if you have any um, interest in being on, I would love to hear from you. Please reach out. And that's it. Come back in two weeks, and we'll see you then. We just recently ended the Million Trees Initiative, so there's a lot of new trees in New York City. Would that mean that you have now planted a million trees?